a very warm welcome to uh, the LSE on Monday evening. Very pleased to see so many people here uh, for this book launch and discussion. My name is Charlie Beckett. Uh, I run a think tank here at the LSE called Polis. Uh, I'm also a member of the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. So I'm very pleased that people are interested in this topic. We've got uh, an excellent panel for you to, to, tonight who are uh, very sort of global in their nature. Professor Saskia Sassen is a professor of sociology at Columbia. She's somebody who personally has roots in all sorts of places in the world, born in Netherlands, Argentina, educated places like France. Uh, you may have heard of France and America and so on. And is also a visiting uh, professor here at the LSC. Uh, uh, Laurie Taylor, uh, of course, had a distinguished career as also as a professor of sociology, um, but perhaps you'll forgive me as a journalist, I think of Laurie as one of the great, great, great radio broadcasters still producing wonderful, um, well, it's called Thinking Aloud, and that's exactly what it is, and that's what we'll, what we'll get tonight. Um, but our star tonight <laughs> is uh, a dear friend and great colleague, uh, Shini Orgad has been at, she's a senior lecturer at the Department of Media and Communications. How long have you been there? Slightly longer than me. <laughs> um, and has created this wonderful book. I've really enjoyed uh, all the relationships with my colleagues uh, in the department, partly because you know, I may be from this city, but it's an incredibly international department with people from all over the place and with students from all over the world but perhaps most importantly with this kind of global uh, perspective, uh, theoretically and in terms of the topics that they look at. And one of the things I've really enjoyed in the seven years that I've been here is um, having some kind of uh, conversation with Shani, partly in terms of teaching, but also outside the classroom as well, where we've had this kind of different perspectives on global events. Shani, perhaps from a more academic perspective and me from a more journalistic one, and it's been... Uh, for me, anyway, it's been a really rich uh, personal experience. We're here, though, to celebrate Shani's book, um, which you can buy outside, Media Representation and the Global Imagination. And if you haven't read it, it is a fantastic book. I was kind of familiar with many of the ideas and many of the cases, but to see it put together in such a, a coherent and provocative way, and I hope it provokes some thoughts uh, tonight, was really wonderful. So Shani's going to kick us off, talking us through some of the ideas in the book, and she's going to have to sort of remain standing, because uh, she has been suffering from a slip desk, so the fact she's not going to sit down is not because we don't want to do part of the, cons- the conversation that follows, and then we're going to get some responses, and then we're going to go to you as well, but over to you first, Shanee, please. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charlie, for the kind introduction, and many thanks to Saskia and Laurie, who are here with us today, and all of you um, coming here this evening. Um, as Charlie said, I'd like to begin by saying a few words about the book, about what motivated me to write the book, and then we turn to the panel. Um, my book originated from a broad question that interests me, about how we imagine the world we live in, how do we imagine our own place in the world and others, um, and our relations to them, and ultimately how this imagining shapes private lives and public life. Imagination is the capacity to form mental concepts um, or mental images to what is absent. 
we frequently think of imagination as a personal, private, creative faculty. And it's evident, um, for instance, in the way we often describe children. He's such an imaginative, great child. She has such a great imagination. But imagination doesn't emerge fully fledged as the result of some spontaneous bursting. Imagination must be nourished, and in order to play a role in public life, it has to be fed by same sources that coordinate how we think and how we feel. Now, we may not always want to admit it, but the media are among the most central sources that feed our imaginations. They shape the way we think and feel about the world, about others, about our lives, the lives we could have or should have had. And this is my interest in the book. I look at the images and narratives and voices and information that circulate in the media today. And by media, I don't mean just news media. All these images and narratives and an invitation to us to think about and imagine the world in certain ways. And I'm particularly interested in the book in the question of how these images that we encounter on a daily basis, how do these narratives invite <coughs> us to think about the world that is characterized by rapid processes of globalization? I address it through looking at five sites of imagination. This is, in a way, how the book is structured. The first is imagining of distant others, such as victims of atrocities or distant um, natural disasters. And I'm looking at how these differ, how are they different historically. I examine some striking differences in my mind between the remake of Haiti earthquake, for those of you who've seen it, uh, which was the uh, a remake of the We Are the World famous um, song, which spread in 2010 as a, in a viral fashion online, comparing to just... Um, a few decades earlier, the 1985 original song, which was one of the most memorable cultural responses to then um, the famine, the Horn of Africa, and representations from some centuries ago, particularly the 1755 Lisbon earthquake, um, and the kind of engravings and witnesses' accounts and images of that time. And I'll say uh, a word in a second about these differences. The second site I'm looking at is imagining uh, of the nation and the notion that the imaginary of the nation is changing and being challenged today, particularly as comfortable citizens in stable societies such as ourselves here today, um, not only gaze at those distant others, but we ourselves become increasingly the object of the world's gaze and the world's scrutiny. The third site is the imagination of possible lives, the notion that today's global culture is one of ongoing circulation of an exposure to an ever-changing store of possible lives that we're called upon, particularly in the global north, but not only, to reinvent ourselves, to seek new, alternative, improved lives. And I look at migration as one of the uh, issues and context that is suggested today in the media and is imagined as the space to pursue possible lives. The fourth site that in a way relates to all these already is the imagining of the world. Uh, it's very obvious in uh, crisis reporting, war reporting, but I'm actually interested in the banal formulaic representations such as the New Year celebrations that some of you have, may have watched not long ago that 
produce year after year in quite a banal way what David Harvey um, calls, which I really like, cartographic knowledges. Certain maps of the world, certain understanding of what the world is. And finally, I show how all these sites converge into the self, how the self has become the principal prism through which all these previous sites, distant others, the nation, the world, and possible lives, are imagined and explained. Now, the focus on the story of individual that is often, as we uh, know, told in very psychological language, invites, in many ways, deep engagement with the issues. It opens up understanding. But at the same time, far too often, rather than opening up to the other and to the world outside and contemplating alternative lives to the one we lead, the focus in the media on the self, on the individual self, fosters self-centered view, inward view. I want to um, talk very briefly in the final last minute about two central dialectical tensions that run through all these sites of imagination. And they characterize how the media today represents the world to us. And in the book I examine them looking at um, various specific examples. The first is the notion that might be taken for granted by many, but um, strikes me, that as viewers, we can and we should become intimates of the faraway others. Yeah? That intimacy at a distance is the prime and sometimes exclusive mode of relations that we are allowed to develop in order to connect, in order to understand faraway people, faraway events, faraway experiences. It arises as a central concept throughout all the sites of imagination that I mentioned, but it's particularly striking in the comparison I've referred to earlier between contemporary representations of distant others and the 18th century ones. In visual and textual accounts of the 1755 Lisbon earthquake, we see how modern sensibilities of responding to the suffering of distant others were already developing. There are depictions of injured and dying masses, citizens helplessly running for their lives, and the Enlightenment accounts evoke the absurdity of the world, the arbitrariness of suffering, and a clear divide, as in Voltaire's famous poem about Lisbon earthquake, between the innocent victims who are suffering in Lisbon and, as he writes, we in London and in Paris who are merry and happy. Now, when we compare these accounts of uh, the 18th century to contemporary accounts, to the 1985 We Are the World and its later 2010 adaptation uh, for the Haiti earthquake, we note a radical transformation in how the other is imagined, how this other, um, distant other is referred to and shown as individuals in close-up, symbolically annihilating the difference between us and them, and making us, if you remember the We Are the World lyrics, God's one great big family. Um, and even more so in the 2010 remake of Ahiti, uh, Will I Am Rapping, You and I, You and I, You and I, uh, referring to you, the, the, vic the Haitian victim, and I here in the studio in Los Angeles or in the West by extension. The central and almost only basis for connecting to others today, to sufferers, to caring about their misfortune, is personalizing them, is developing mediated intimacy with their experience. 
And there are many other examples throughout the book in relation to other sites of imagination where I highlight the centrality of the cultural model of intimacy in the way media representations invite us today to relate to the far away. I consider the value and significance of intimacy as a mode of relation, but I also want to warn or to invite us thinking about its limits and its dangers. Intimacy at a distance, as I show, calls on the viewers to engage with bigger-than-self issues in quite tangible and concrete ways. It often evokes emotional relations, sometimes translates into commitment, and it draws on vulnerability as a way to connect and develop understanding of the other. At the same time, I show how intimacy at a distance is highly problematic and often dangerous as a singular exclusive mode to understand the other and how reductive it can be. Nourishing intimacy at a distance too often fails to enable us a complex understanding of the issue and the other. But unlike some of my colleagues um, in media and communication, in sociology and other disciplines, I do not believe that we should simply lament intimacy as inauthentic or as narcissism or as self-absorption that somehow contaminates our moral imagination. As cultural forms, media representations should build and allow us different degrees of proximity and distance intimacy included. So rather than abandoning intimacy altogether and say how horrible it is and how it's debasing our culture, um, I consider its pitfalls and how we might eschew some of the pitfalls of the way intimacy is constructed today. For instance, the fact that it's often very fleeting. We are called upon to become intimate with the other and it's gone um, because of uh, the media structure and the way uh, the media environment is um, constructed. And the other point I want to conclude with, and this is the uh, second as aspect that runs through the book, is the ways in which representations construct the world and call us to imagine is characterized by closure, by coherence. Now, of course, the historical function of representations is to reflect reality, and sociologically it constitutes a very significant source of certainty, of reassurance, a considerable part of the work of media representations and particularly factual genres such as the news is invested in the creation and the perpetuation of a polished account of the world that we viewers are given the impression that we just can move in and inhabit. The narrative form that governs contemporary representation strives to sustain this coherence and order, to establish causality, to suppress contingency, to suppress randomness. And the narratives that circulate in the media today, which I examine throughout the book, are driven by and function of the impulse to moralize reality somehow. And in the book I look at a range of narratives that impose moral judgments on the events they describe and invite us to identify it with particular moral authorities. And these moral authorities can be capitalism, but it can also be humanitarianism, cosmopolitanism, or self-help culture. However, what my view, in my view, is so interesting and potentially productive in the current global space, especially the online space, I should say, but not only, is that it encourages the production and the increasing visibility of representations that refuse narrativity, representations that by implication refuse classification, refuse completeness, and may refuse closure. 
I examine an example of a blog which some of you may have come across. Riverbend was written by an anonymous young Iraqi woman whose final posts relate her enforced departure from her home in Iraq to Syria in 2007. And the blog reveals the ambivalence in imagining the new lives awaiting refugees. The uncertainty, the lack of clarity of this experience and its private and political consequences. One of the fascinating aspects of this blog is that it ends quite abruptly. And the reader is left to wonder what happened to Riverbend. We don't know how her life in Syria or maybe in another country has worked out. And this non-ending, which goes against the fundamental principle of narrative, which is closure, forces the imagination to accept incompleteness. We are unable to conclude or classify Riverbend or her experience with complete certainty, with complete coherence. Narratives, on the other hand, effectively prohibit ambivalence and incoherence. Now, certainly I'm not arguing against narratives. We need narratives. We need clear explanatory accounts that help us to cope with the constant uncertainties, the fragility, uh, and the lack of coherence of our times. And narratives do precisely that. They work to impose symbolic order on the modern experience, which is fraught with ambivalence and anxieties. At the same time, I conclude the book by arguing that we need symbolic spaces to articulate the contradictions and tensions brought by modern life in a global world. We need representations that, if you wish, allow us to live with ambivalence, to accept incompleteness, to accept lack of closure and moralizing. Media representations often oust ambivalence from the imagination. At the same time, transformations in the current media environment, however dangerous and warring they might be, open up spaces that might allow readmittance of ambivalence into the imagination, accepting that not knowing and not fully understanding are inevitable features of life today. The sociologist Sigmund Bauman describes ambivalence as the waste of modernity. I think we should seek and demand that our media give us more of this waste. Thank you. Yes, I'm sure thinking of all the waste that I produce as a media producer. Saskia, I know that you have to, um, been very global and depart slightly before the end of this, so I think it's um, to the airport. So I think it would be good to go to you first to respond to that. Um, well, I think Shani has written just a great book. And in my uh, sort of a short description of your book, you are continuously playing interference with sort of conventional, you know, stereotypes, big ideas that never get put to the test. And you cover a vast range of domains. I mean, how many years did it take you to write this? Tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, it's, it's a, truly a scholarly... Uh, interesting book. It's interesting historically, the different elements you bring up. So this is all the compliments. Now I'm just going to ask you a few questions, but they are clarification, moving slightly towards maybe contestation, but you know, it's all en famille, as we say. So the, the first, um, I just want to start when you mentioned the, 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 the blog of the Iraqi woman. I want to bring up two elements in your, in your book. 
So what is the blog of the Iraqi woman who is online, mm-hmm. but her body and her feelings and her terrors are moving across terrain, territory, land, ground, right? I'm not even focusing on the, on the end, that there is no end. But that's another issue. So that is one point. And the other point is a sentence that appears somewhat later in the book. It's, it's this notion, the other is here. The other is not coming. The other mm. is here. And online, we can deal with all kinds of others. Mm. But they're not here. Even if they are in the other room, but in that space. So I just wanted you to think aloud, since you like playing interference with all the established <laughs> notions of what this all means. Um, how, is there a connection between those two? Ex- I mean, they're the opposite. Here is this Iraqi woman becoming a refugee or whatever, going to Syria. This is before the current Syria. Mm. Um, and, and, uh, and then there is this other one where the other is here. But if here, if you're online, the here is still, I mean, am, am I clear in, in what I'm saying, in, in what I'm asking you to address? I'm just going to run through my things, right? And then, is, mm-hmm. that, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Or do we want to do it more conversationally? You, you run through it. Okay, I run through it. So the, the second set of, so I consider this one set of issues, you know. Really, it is the connection between, I don't want to say an outside world, but a very physical world where your own body is mm. engaged. Mm. Now, online, your body can also be very engaged. It's just a, a different space of engagement. Than, you know. and, and then the other set of issues that I found very interesting is, um, and here I, I, I go back to a bit of the, the work that I have done. I'm very interested in the opposite types of subjects that you are sort of mostly covering. I'm interested in non-cosmopolitan, mm. immobile, mm-hmm. obsessed with the local torturer in their jail, the local manufacturer who is poisoning their water. In today's world, because of this imagined space, even if they are not online, and I know quite a few of them, especially human rights and environmental people, right, uh, um, activists, they feel that there is a larger whole, but it's not centered on communication. Mm. It's centered on some notion of the recurrence of the torturer, the polluter, and the people who struggle against them. So it, the, because a lot of the, the, the analysis of this, of this media really center in the question of communication, what gets communicated, etc. And this is not centered. They may never be online, but this medium has presence even among people that are not online. And it's like an, a subjective opening to others that you may never know. You don't, you don't even, you're not even curious about them. But you know, one way of putting it is, I'm not alone in this. There are others. Whereas before, that might have I been, you know, 50 years ago, that might have vaguely been the case also. But, you know, it wasn't as forceful as it is now. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask you how that fee- fits in with your, your uh, you have a sentence here. Let me just, um, it's not the mediated intimacy, but um, anyhow, this notion of, of shared meanings. Let me move. Now, then I want to just briefly ask you something about nation. Hmm. And, and you say a lot of very, very interesting things about the nation, and I have a few things that I wanted to actually go to. On page 106, 107, 
you have a, a great sentence here, which is a degree of defamiliarization from the commonsensical national narrative of us, in quotations, is vital to enable understandings of others and ourselves in more complex, inclusive, and moral ways. After that, this is by chance, I'll just see my, you cite my husband in a beautiful sentence, but I'm not <laughs> going to go there. <laughs> now I saw it. So, I wanted to, to, to pursue a bit in depth this question of the nation and the, you know, um, and when you say a degree of defamiliarization, mm. I mean, that's a very qualified sentence. Mm. Defamiliarization, not distancing, but de a degree of, from the commonsensical national narrative of it. Now, what I want to bring in is a transversal otherness mm -hmm. around the nation. And that is the notion that there might be quite a bit of denationalizing that is vectored, if you want, through this kind of online space. Mm -hmm. Because people, this notion itself of imagining some shared something with somebody on the other side of the world. Now, the language may not exist, and so that is why I know this is a language you have here. A degree of defamiliarization. We go there very, very carefully, very tentative sentence, right? And and I would then, if I want to provoke you, I would say, what if actually what we're really talking about is a denationalizing? Mm. They may not have the speech in them to put it that way. But to what? And so I just wanted your objective, if you want comment or response. What do you think of that? Because I think that would actually be a very interesting dimension, you know, if people who are online, even if they don't have a language, even if they don't know where they're going, but they actually, their material practices produce in them a sense of denationalizing. So that doesn't mean that you have to leave your country, but it is, you know, it's, I think it's a significant force in a world where nationalism is resurgent. So then, then the question is, is your tentative language, mm. because you're not at all sure of what is happening. I am quite sure of one end of the variable, which is there's far more denationalizing going on, that the typical person that I at least run into has speech about. They may vaguely sense it, but they don't have speech about it. You know, they don't know how to talk about it. And so I was just wondering, I'm just here looking at this one sentence because I happen to find it so overly qualified. But, mm. uh, and then I had one more item that I wanted to ask you. Uh, now, the way you talk about this global imagination, this global imaginary and the media, at times, mm -hmm. uh, and I cannot, uh, I cannot say that I have a totally clear sense of everything you have said in the book. I confess. <laughs> but, so, at, time, at times what it, what it feels a bit like is like the media the media, you know, some vague animal out there, constitutes a sort of layer mm. onto which we might step onto, feel totally comfortable, but it's not home. You know, and, but it's so easy to step into that. And, to, and, and then when I think of, again, sort of coming back to some of the research that I have done, that, that you know, my, my favorite case is comparing activists and financiers. And... Uh, and this notion that, that the content, the meanings, the implications of the interactive moment 
is to a very large extent shaped by something that is very concrete but outside mm. the online space, mm. which is their daily experiences, what they think, what they, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I just wanted to to ask you, because the way you, you are, the object that you set up to, in a way, combat or fight with or, or unsettle is this global media representation, right? And it feels a bit like something that is very powerful while you're on the platform. But you know what? When you check out, it may not leave a trace. So it is actually a circumstance rather than something that is out there as a force, you know, as a shadow hanging over everything. And so I just wanted you to clarify. I have a few more other comments, but I think I'm going to, to stop talking because, yeah. But great, a great book, really, just a great book. I think it would be a good idea if you responded to this. It was opened up <laughs> vast, vast yes. areas and... Okay. Questions. I think we could, if you responded, then we'll, we'll come back to Gloria. I might respond selectively, just also yeah, to yeah. kind of leave time. Yes. Um, and I think your last comment and your first <coughs> comment is really about the relations between material embodied really presence and experiences and the mediated. Um, to me, there seems to be far less a distinction than the one. Um, so to me, the notion that you can check out and it doesn't leave a trace. Um, is decreasingly the case, at least based on, on the kind of you know, studies that um, I look at as well as my own experience. Um, and I think I, I very much, and obviously since the book deals with uh, representation, it's object. I don't deal with embodied experiences, but my training, as you know, is in the ethnographic tradition, and I very much want uh, and to bring it in and to bear it in mind. And I start the book with, the, with this caveat that, you know, it's not about this kind of detached textual visual analysis per se. Um, but I definitely um, think, as far as the online is concerned, that these traces are always there. I wouldn't necessarily agree that there's denationalization, as you suggest, and there's one um, um, blog that I cite later in the book of an Israeli um, journalist who basically facing the Facebook um, torture, uh, trivialized torture uh, pictures of one Israeli woman soldier who put it online, um, revisits his own experience in the military. It's a highly estranged experience, and the blog is defamiliarizing himself from national narratives, but he realizes that he's, he's trapped in the national. So to me, it's not denationalizing. It's this platform enables him and many others um, a space that allows precisely this anthropological gaze, if you wish, on the taken for granted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but the traces are always there. So I think we see it mm -hmm. differently in terms of the right. relationship. Um, and it's interesting that you... I, I want to pause on, on this... Uh, on this kind of quote that you, you kind of noted my qualified yeah. uh, sentences and it links actually to something that well to a person who's not with us here today but has greatly influenced my thinking and particularly this chapter we, we, we sat through comments and comments with the sociologist Stanley Cohen and we had a lot of discussion this interestingly this very sentence is a result of conversations we had 
Um, because I was um, originally in quite strong sense of not degrees of defamiliarization, but defamiliarization, the sense that um, the media can estrange ourselves, can kind of throw it into realizing our national narratives and um, estrange ourselves from yes, these. I agree with it. Um, anyway, yes. But discussions actually with Stan um, also alerted me very much to, if you wish, the pathological problems of becoming the other. When you are becomer, become the observer of, you know, rather than the, the looker on the self, you are an obs- a constant observer on the self. And the explosive potential of estrangement, you know, we need, and I think we need a national, and we need a national community as um, a sense of, for sense of belonging and as a social unit. So, um, to me, it is about degrees and and about the variety of degrees, but these degrees of defamiliarization should be on offer. Where my trouble is, is that where they aren't offered, and I think they aren't offered sufficiently. Um, but I, I think denationalization would be probably a radical project that to argue for the mainstream media, at least to embrace, would be problematic and <laughs> ambitious. Yeah. Um, I think I'll leave it there. I, I hope I touched yeah, on yeah, some yeah, of yeah, your absolutely. comments, which I yes, find yes. very fruitful. I think it's also the di- cross-disciplinary dialogue that is opening up thinking um, in very fruitful ways. Thank you. Thanks. Laurie, have you ever been accused with your suitcase? <laughs> 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 well, when I arrived, I didn't know who else was taking part. I saw a suitcase, I thought, Saskia... <laughs> 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 she has two brains, one in her head and one in the suitcase. <laughs> 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 well, um, I think that uh, perhaps uh, um, the mark of a good book is that it sends you off in directions other than that in which you are being channeled by the author. Um, and this is, to that extent, rather than the part used to distinguish between readerly and writerly text, this is very much a writerly text insofar as, you know, when I found I'm getting through a few pages and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm drifting away and thinking about something else that's been aroused by what you have to say. Um, yes, I had the same experience, actually. Yeah. That it kept, yeah. I mean, I think I'll, j- I'll just, to go in, I'll just pick up on something. I think that one thing we need to talk about, and I'll come to what you're reminding me of, is something about the potency of media representations, you mm-hmm. see. I mean, I don't think, I mean, as you, I think it was your implying in a way, you know, we say media representation and so on, and we just need to, I mean, we all know, we all make absolute distinctions almost every sort of ten minutes during the day about what we have seen and the value of what we have seen and the context in which that representation occurs and the sense to which we ascribe any degree of authenticity to the context and what appears in that context. You know, so if we talk, for example, about panorama and what is on panorama, we're talking about two things. We're talking about a content and a context. And these, I think, are, you know, yeah. these are ways of discriminating. Now, why I mention this and bring this up is because one of the things your book, remi- your book reminded me of and let me come at it this way, if I may. You see, you talk, um, you, 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 you talk about this, you say that contemporary representations construct the world simultaneously as a social, economic, political and cultural place of sameness, unity and standardisation. <coughs> and as a place marked by competition and divided by deep differences, inequalities and hierarchies of success. Sameness, Division, those two things. Now, the way I thought, good heavens, 
I know this, I recognise this, and I recognise this from a long time ago, and I have to sorry about the biographical touch, but I, I was brought up in Liverpool in a lower middle class family, and we didn't know about abroad. I mean, you know, you have to imagine a time when you didn't know about abroad. We ne- nobody went abroad. I'd never been abroad. None of my contemporaries had ever been abroad. Abroad for us was New Brighton. Across the Mersey, really. I mean, the, the slogan for New Brighton was come to New Brighton for your holidays and watch the world's ships go by. That was the cosmopolitan invitation we received, you know. Now, when I was there, but at the same time, at round about, so about the age of about 16 or 17, an exhibition came to Liverpool called The Family of Man. And we all rushed off to see the family of man because this is a worldwide exhibition. It came to great fanfares and it said to all these domesticated, immobilised people as we were then, here is a vision, a version, a representation of the world. And I want to stress a potent representation of the world, hugely, you know, I mean, it was lauded. And this was the great thing. And what it consisted of was an enormous number of photographs taken from all around the world showing, it claimed, the basic humanity, basic humanity, I mean, it was called the family of man at that time, but obviously the basic humanity. And so you saw representations of birth, you know, perhaps in Leicester or perhaps in Rwanda or wherever, representations of death, representations of illness, representations of marriage. And you were being invited to do two things at the same time. In the first place, you were being invited to look at these photographs and say, okay, and this, this, you're being invited, and this, this, this analysis is not mine. Because fortunately, Roland Barthes came along, saw the exhibition, <laughs> and, got, and put it into his book, Mythologies, as a classic example of the creation of an essentialist myth. Yeah. And this is what he did. I mean, you know, he wants to say, look, you want to say that there is a difference. I mean, the, the exhibition says, look at all these wonderful differences. Look at how different these people are. In their colour, their skin, their brows, their skulls, their stances, their costumes. Look at them. Aren't they strange? And then it says, simultaneously, your words, simultaneously, simultaneously, a unity is magically produced. All of a sudden, all these people who seem to be all so different, they all are born. They all go to work. They all laugh. They all die. We're all the same. It's the great human race together. If it still looks a bit different, well, it's only formal. This is still a common mould. Now, everything here, Bart says, aims to suppress the determining weight of history. It takes history away from This is a potent representation which steals history. I mean, true children are always born, but what does this matter compared to being born with ease or with difficulty? What does it matter compared to mortality rates, to the degree of future that is open to the people, the life expectancy there? We all die, but how do we fight against death? At what age do we die? We all work. Yes, work is also natural, but it's only natural just as long as it's profitable. This, said Bach, is a view of the world, the essentialism, this essentialist view, which gives, I love this phrase, the immobility of the world. It says, this is how it is and will always be. These are the samenesses. These are the reassuring bits. When you go abroad, it may all seem a bit strange, but the reassuring bits. Now, that, I think, is an important way. I mean, here's another perfect example. Bart, again, who was fascinated by just this area, about the way in which you denude, you take away, 
He's talking about the blue guide, the wonderful Michelin blue guide. And here he is in the, talking about the blue guide. You've probably come across the blue guide in modern versions. He says, for the blue guide, men, again, only exist as types. In Spain, for instance, the Basque is an adventurous sailor, the Levantine, a light-hearted gardener, the Catalan, a clever tradesman, and the Cantabrian, a sentimental highlander. We find again here this disease of thinking of in essences, which is at the bottom of every bourgeois mythology of man, which is why we come across it so often. The ethnic reality of Spain is thus reduced to a vast classical ballet, a nice niece commedia del arte whose improbable typology serves to mask the real spectacle of conditions, classes and professions. For the blue guide, men exist as social entities only in trains where they fill a very mixed third class. Apart from that, they are a mere introduction. They constitute a charming and fanciful decor meant to surround the essential part of the country, its collection of monuments. Now, why I brought this up here? Because, in a way, we're talking about the extent to which it is always so. Now, you say again, against all this essentialism, you advocate a degree of distance. You say representation should be able to help cultivate a degree of distance from the self and from ourselves as members of a community. We need to get distance from ourselves, and that is a progressive moral force. I would just sort of play in again here, and all I'm doing is just sort of remembering and being stimulated by what you have to say, Bart again in the Empire of Signs. Mm. Another classic text which apparently is about Japan, but is not about Japan, because he insists it is not about Japan. This is about a series of symbols which he finds dislocating when compared to his Western experience of the world. He takes a whole series of symbols and he dislocates his thought by putting these together into some system that could not be imagined elsewhere. The impossibility of imagining this. It almost recalls Foucault. The impossibility of imagining a group of people who could possibly hold to these epistemological presuppositions. I mean, that is the, the heart of the order of things. So the impossibility. So I want to so Barth there is the I want to end you sentence Stan Cohen. I can remember years ago when I wrote a book with Stan Escape Attempts and uh, one of the things that we did, we were talking about authenticity and the notion of authentic experience. And one of the things we got into was into, into holidays and the representations of the other and the representations of strangers which contained in holidays. And I can remember just a little last ending about the idea of it's, uh, it's, uh, it, 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 it is, it is this, the sense to which holidays allow you any authentic experience. And it's, we use Zimmel's characterization of the adventure to capture the way in which all such holidays are simultaneously continuous and discontinuous with the reality of everyday life. Simmel wrote, while it falls outside the context of life, this is the adventure, it falls with this same movement, as it were, back into that context again. It is a foreign body in our existence, which is yet somehow connected with the centre. The outside, if only by a long and unfamiliar detour, is formally an aspect of the inside. So that's, those are just some of the memories that uh, you're out. I don't have any questions. I should have done some questions like you, shouldn't I? <laughs> but, uh, no. You're known to be very good about questions. Somebody, somebody you might me, give it a try. No, sorry, I've forgotten. You know, somebody, <laughs> do, do you want to swap your Stan Cohen stories? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would, like to, I would you like to respond to that. Would you like to attempt to respond to that? <laughs> well, I think, you know, p- part of what I'm uh, arguing is that 
part of what media representations produce or the work they do is not new. So here's the link to yeah. you know, the family of man, certainly. Um, I'm interested in the potential after mythologies, beyond mythologies, and not to deny that they will keep exist and that they are always there and will always be there. Um, but, you know, it's back to the degrees of distance. It's about the variety, not in quantity, but in quality of relations that representations can offer. But in potency and as well, you see, you don't... Mm. And that is the thing that I just find difficult to say. When you talk about media representations, but they don't seem... I, I don't get the sense that they are distinguished from each other. You know, where Saskia said everybody returns from a media representation to a lived reality where they test the media representation out, don't they? I didn't say that second part. No, no, no. no, 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 no but, you, but you return to... Yeah, yes, that's right. Yeah. So the ways we bracket a media representation... But you do that all the time in the text, mm. right? You are sort of engaging in that. Mm. Yes, and I'm not sure that this bracketing ha happens... You know, always. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I go obviously to the most extreme space also of, of avatars and um, second world. That's right. I think it's it's but a bit of where, where where the bracketing doesn't happen. But if I see a David Attenborough mm. film mm. about a, a, an alien place, I see that with no human beings within it. I mean. Attenborough empties space. Mm. In other words, he produces an essentialism about animals and their habitat, which is fabricated and false. But it's now, called I, Africa, and if you, you come, you know, it's not, it's not detached of I think, I think people call it Attenborough. I don't think they call it Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so it's not, yes. it, it can be Attenborough. You work around cities and so on. Uh, are, you, uh, are you sort of challenging the idea... That, that is implicit in what she's writing there, which is that somehow mediation, especially but not exclusively, you know, modern internet digital mediation can somehow you know, cross barriers, move us beyond ourselves. Are you sort of querying no, that? No. Of, no, 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 I'm not. I am actually, uh, there are two vectors sort of that, I, that lead me to whatever. That's the little bridge that I mm. built as I was reading the book. You know, when I could have, if I had had more time, I would have probably had more. But one vector is a relationship between the online and the, mm. like what you just were saying. You know, and that we can navigate that with great ease. I also think that the extent to which, like you said, the traces are left. You step out. You're doing better gardening, but it's not that you have totally abandoned mm. that online world. But I see, I see these things, and that would be the second factor. That's a variable. You know, at one end, you have people who are lost in that. I mean, they're totally there. And at the other end, you have the extreme. It's a total utility. And then most of us are probably somewhere in the middle. It does leave a trace. But the trace itself is also going to be shaped partly by what it is that you exit into, you know, when you leave that. So my little non-cosmopolitan, not little, I didn't mean to say that, my non-cosmopolitan furious mm. activists, they have a very powerful zone, potency, you know. So for them, the potency of the medium is precisely because they're not in it. Mm -hmm. Because that creates a complex world. We're all in here. There is something that connects us. And that is sort of, I don't know how you call that in your vocabulary, right? But that is a kind of imaginary. 
Uh, that is a global imaginary, but it does not depend on com first communicating them. Because I, find I, I get a bit bored, you know, but you don't do that at all, by the way. But a lot of the writing about this is about communication. Mm -hmm. And the act of communication is constitutive. And I'm very interested in when there is no communication. You know, there is interaction, but there is not necessarily, it's not, it does not, let me rephrase, it does not depend on communicating with each other. You mean on communication technologies? No, no, yes, communication technologies. No, but I mean that you're actually, you know, communicating something. Mm. It, there, are, there is a kind of zone of shared experiencing, mm. which it's not about exchanging information. That's what I mean, exchanging information. So the financiers are exchanging information, you know, in their own language, you know, which is strange things, etc. But, but that it doesn't have to be so utilitarian. There can, other things can be happening. And so the extreme for me is these people who are mostly not online and, and the force of the medium is precisely that it is in their imaginations and they connect with the world with all of activists, you know. And that is extremely powerful. Mm -hmm. But the medium plays a very critical role in that. Mm. They know that there is that. You know, and every now and then they may know it or not be online. You know, ever I don't know that it doesn't matter really. But so that is an extreme condition. Now, at this end, you never leave the media, right? Now I don't. I, I notice that you are not playing. I tend to in my research and, and theorization, I always go to extreme conditions mm. under the the assumption, which may be totally incorrect, that the extreme condition makes visible, uh, potentially at least a larger condition than the thing itself, right? So I'm very interested in these extremes. You dwell in the middle zone, right? A bit or not? Not really, because some of the issues that you're dealing with are also pretty extreme. Yeah, and to me, migrants' experiences are not in the middle, you know. Yeah, exactly, they're yeah. not. But I don't think we disagree, mm -hmm. you know? I just think that we have different um, conceptual instruments. Yes. Perhaps through which we narrate what we're interested yeah, in. Yeah, and I think... I, you know, I, I want to clarify that my book and my thinking is not that people live and yeah, in the no, media and, sure. and sure. you know, um, and I'm together here with a you know bunch of many people who um, um, showed the interconnections of online and offline. And in brackets, in a way, I suppose my own previous work, which looked at women who suffer from breast cancer and use the online space some in very instrumental ways, some in therapeutic ways, precisely looked at the embodied, what more, experience, um, and the ways in which a certain medium provides a platform, but a platform that is meaningful. How potent? I think it's questionable. And I start the book by the big caveat that I haven't done audience research. Um, but what my, inter my interest and my thinking about it, and this Boltanski that's very much influenced me, is to think about it as invitations. You know, we are invited to parties. We are daily invited, get invitations issued, to think and imagine. I'm less interested in what we are um, invited to imagine, but how we are invited to imagine. And I'm identifying this how in these two elements that I talked about. And it's almost always or quite predominantly through the intimate which bothers me and disturbs me, yeah. and, um, and it can be about migrants, and get, it's the terrorists, and it's the neighbor. It's, 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 it's us and them through intimacy. So intimacy is a very um, central and almost exclusive mode of experiencing the world and, and yeah. the mediated. And it's through the closure. This, and this, 
And what you said about your activist actually to me really sits really nicely with my call and wish for ambivalence. Because it's not about, as you say, it's not about clear narrative. It's not about information and exchanging. It's about an experience that perhaps cannot be captured by the ways that we are used to. Right, right. Laurie, can I get free back in on the intimacy, as it were? Because it struck me with your example of um, you know, the, 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 what's it called? The Family of Man? Yes. The Family of Man exhibition. But um, in a sense, that was almost the reverse. It was... You know, a classic sort of public, deliberate act of communication, probably mm-hmm. with a very strong m- motive. They probably had an educational, mm-hmm. internationalist mm-hmm. perspective um, there, and yet, I mean, people still go to, still have these things. Um, you know, people still go to them, and yet they are experienced quite differently themselves. And also, people will, as Shanice says, will experience that. When you think of our experience of the family of man, but there's endless programs of people having babies and um, doing all, all sorts of um, things that we recognise from our own lives, but internationally and from different classes, you know, different perspectives and so on. Do you think that there's something that has changed here um, sociologically? If you're well, right, I, I, we are now in this sort of... I entirely accept the fact, I mean, I think that Sean Gladstone mentioned that earlier book, because, I mean, there, of course, you are looking at the role of narrative, the way in which, Mm. on the internet, even on the internet, which apparently is sort of like a series of often disconnected, apparently, Mm. you know, unrelated, almost schizophrenic message board, that nevertheless, narratives are constructed, stories are built, and stories are told. That makes, I mean, and I very much like that, sense of, of script, which is something which Stan worked with very strongly upon the way in which that narrative is. And I do take the point that under the you know, with new modes uh, of communication, that you aren't provided with a narrative. You, know, you may be provided with a great deal of intimacy. You, know, you are yeah. suddenly banged up against the face of the sufferer you know, for a few months, right. even though yeah. you don't yeah. know where they come from or where they're going to. But I mean, I, I agree there are differences there. But I, I just, I suppose, I still want to, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I know that you can't do everything in the book, but I still want to talk about the fact that a standard feature of human conversation is about the extent to which media representations relate to lived experience. You know, and, and I mean, every single person in this room probably today has had a conversation about how what they have seen, what they have read fails to conform with what they have experienced. Uh, you know, the, every television programme is criticised entirely in terms of the way in which it matches what's going on. And, you know, we make very, very subtle distinctions indeed. You know, we say, oh, well, I'm not surprised about that because it falls within this genre. If it falls within that genre, then, in fact, this is how I will treat it. If it is in that genre, I will treat it in a completely different. I don't think anybody watches David Attenborough's programme on Africa and expects to find that Africa is like that when they arrive there. I just don't believe it for a moment. We walk around and say, oh, well, it's Attenborough, you know, or it's this com- it's, no, we know French people don't behave like that we know this is not true So that is the, only, the little tiny sense that I have that uh, what you had in your earlier book, in a way the contestation and the construction of stories I know you don't, you can't do everything I mean, but I'm saying you don't do that as sort of audience research, I want to hear about that contestation yeah. a little tiny bit more because otherwise I feel little tiny bits as though I'm 
I, I'm almost, almost as I felt I'm, at the end of it, I almost struggle out of these damn media representations <laughs> as though you've got me with them, you know, yeah. and I'm part and parcel to them and I can't really escape them and I should do my best to in- engineer some dislocations uh, for my own good. <coughs> I think with the big caveat that what I think of media representations includes not only your colleagues' representations, but the Facebook representations about lived experiences, blogs' ex- uh, representations about lived experiences. So this gap that might be true for the exhibition and might be still true for the David Attenborough or for others um, is a gap that is negotiated and through li- bringing one's lived experience and narrating it online or in... in, in and, and I deliberately include both type of media representations and in a way don't distinguish between them because the research that we do have from audience research that I'm familiar also shows that people don't necessarily consume television, internet, blogs, Facebook, <coughs> that it does interact. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So these media keep. representations, many of them, are about lived experience, are about the individuals that put them online, and sometimes in a viral fashion they become far more global than even David Attenborough. Yeah. Um, I suppose in a way the interesting bit is how able are people to contest or interrogate mm. they would never call it that uh, I assume, so for example thinking of the Africa uh, series I think you're right, people know that this is a you know, this is a, a box set that you're going to give someone else at Christmas you know that it's not reality and yet it must, it'd be interesting to see how it does though impact on people's expectations when they ever do go to mm-hmm. Africa and they want to go on safari and, you know, in the literal sense you know, so that it may, they may be conscious in the same way that people always used to say to me of course I don't believe what's in the newspapers they always lie but then they still read the newspapers and will you know, take on much but, but you see, that was the self bit though you see you yeah. see the self is defined in many cases against media representations right. how you announce who you are is by saying who you are not and you are not a representation yeah. you see I mean you know that, that in fact I mean you know in a way that's the central core of this book that I wrote with Stan it is how you constantly constantly announce your distance from representations you know now you may be fallible in this you may be capable of perpetuating them. You may, in fact, be placing yourself in an alternative stereotype or an alternative representation, although you feel you're being true to yourself. But nevertheless, it's the way people work, I think, that you discover who you are by objecting, as Goffman once famously said, mm. against the institutions and representations rather than by inhabiting them. I don't think that, on the one hand, we humans, whatever we call ourselves, uh, we are great at all these negotiations, right? I mean, it started with the Stone Age, probably, right? So we don't have a problem in principle. And so it just struck me, as, as you were speaking, now this escape from representation. Representation is one of these dominant categories that is an invitation. I always feel that with very powerful categories, it's an invitation not to think. Mm-hmm. So my first reaction always is, I'm going to destabilize that, and I'm going to find out, by invoking that, what am I not seeing? Mm. It's not even what I'm not saying, but what am I not seeing? What's in the shadow of this incredibly bright light that is, at this point, the category representation? And so I'm just, I realize now that this was not a question that was running through my mind as I was reading your book. 
And I wonder if you have thought about it too, since your book is so much about it, and you're you're fighting with it. Mm. But what what is your main instrument? I, are you okay? You're fighting with it. Are you intent on defeating it, or or is the struggle <laughs> around other issues? It's just I'm just curious. So. This we could be having this conversation over dinner. Yes. I mean, you don't have to answer now, but it just came as a question right now. In my you, can never def- you can never defeat media. You know, That's right. A, Representation. Yeah, exactly. right. I think it's a good opportunity to uh, push it out there. It's a very nice conversation we're having here, but um, I'd very much like to... So I know there's some wonderful people here. Would any of you like to ship it, please? Robert. Oh, thank you. I'm finding this really fascinating, Anna. I think my question is for Shalini. What strikes me in the discussion that we're having now is the word memory. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering whether you could comment uh, a little bit on whether when you talk about these media representations um, in a way that perhaps you don't do in the book because you haven't got a long um, mm. time span for your examples. But if you think about the production of these instances of representations in the various um, platforms of media, mm-hmm. and then think about it in terms of the traces of memory, which are captured and recaptured and regenerated through time, and whether or not you think that that process is actually part and parcel of the um, fragmentation that you talk about. And it, it just reflect a little bit about that and how it affects our memory and our imagination, regardless of whether we're online or offline. Can you say just uh, what do you mean by in the fragmentation point? That's the, the part. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the, I'm not sure whether it's a myth or whether we don't know enough yet about mm. interactions online or with conventional media. But one of the arguments is that as we go into a much more intensely mediated environment, we get we become fragmentary in terms of what we interact with, what we produce, and that this in turn leads to a different, if you like, mm. perception of how the world is, what other experiences. And if you think about that in terms of memory, that each time somebody comes and produces an image online or a news reporter comes and tells a story, develops mm-hmm. a narrative, they're drawing not only on yeah. other representations, but, but on their own memory of that representation. Mm-hmm. And that, that memory itself may be accurate or inaccurate mm. depending on your standpoint. So I just ask you yeah. to reflect a little bit no, on I'm, I'm very sympathetic and open. I think in the book I use the notion of scripts to capture what you're saying and to argue that there is a range of scripts which is a a limited range of scripts that are being drawn upon and in a way reproduced uh, almost um, and often unconsciously if you wish or unintentionally but that draw on the memory or the historical kind of um, script and these scripts change over time, but they also have um, a structure and a frame that doesn't change. That kind of links to the to bars and to mythology. So, I think memory would have thrown me to a different territory in terms of the questions I would uh, engage with. So, I'm not using it explicitly, but I'm, I I I think it complements definitely what 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 you're saying makes a lot of sense. And to me. The tool, the analytical tool of scripts and thinking of what scripts are being offered, and in particular in the example that I use from 18th century representation through contemporary representation, um, the script is there and builds upon the memory, if you wish, the archive. There's a sense of kind of representational archive that both producers work with as well as media consumers work with, um, and that is being established. So, yeah, I welcome this. Uh, um, question very much in this concept. 
I was just going to tiny bit. Just I think the question that prompted this was when you know Bart writing Empire of Science, and he says, "I want to write," not explicitly related to memory, but in a way, he says, "I I could write a book in which I summon up all sorts of images of the ways in which people live and the symbols they employ, and set it in a fictional universe." You know that this is one way I can get away from all, as it were those memories which are attached to particular countries and cultures. So I'm going to write about Japan, but I'm sick to death of all those known stories. So what am I going to do? Shall I write about a fictional thing? No, I won't. I'll invent a Japan. Uh, I'll take some things from Japan which just seem to me odd, awkward, dislocated. I'll weave these into a system and I'll throw these at you to make you suddenly think, good God, you know, I mean, for example, a tiny example, you know, the ways in which is it where the, the, the difference between eating with chopsticks and, and using a knife and fork, that a knife and fork <coughs> attacks and vigorously, you know, it violates the food that is in front of it, whereas the chopsticks are an arse's palate in which tiny, delicate, little touches of colour are selected from the palate before being deposited in the mouth. Now, that, that, he wants that distinction. He wants that, because he's, this gets me away from all the accretions which are around Japan and what Japan means. So, so it, it's actively getting rid of stuff, you know, producing what you want to call distance, what Bart calls dislocation, fucking up, you know, all the representations as much as you can. I think in brackets, um, the current project I'm doing now in collaboration with Berkbeck is about humanitarian communications, and we conducted focus groups across the country, and Japan, of course, came up very interestingly, messing up Bart, <laughs> um, because the affinities that the British members of the public found with the Japanese were striking. They didn't talk about chopsticks, they talked about how we all queue up. And Shani's mentioned research. Some of you may have noticed there's some copies of the report Shani did for us last year which refers to this new research. Just take another back, Sonia. Um, well, I'm trying to understand uh, in the image that's come from the two discussants of the notion of how we understand ourselves in our everyday life without representation, the sense of a place outside representation where we can think who we are and know what there is. Um, so I'm provoked to um, the opposite extreme case, which is that there is only representation. Uh, and this would lead me to ask um, Shani to say something about varieties of representation, because it struck me in your talk, I'm sure not in your book, media representation didn't get um, much broken down. But just to kind of make the obvious point, there is the family of man, and then Bart writes about it, and that is another representation. And the, a lot of work on texture analysis or from literary scholarship would be to try and understand how representations comment on representation, then there are the people who go and they have a narrative about going to the exhibition which would be different from Bart's, but that would be yet another representation that they will take home and will circulate. And, you know, whether we, I mean, Shani knows that I'm a, a fan of Umberto Eco's distinction between open and closed texts, um, where the open text is precisely designed to defamiliarise and to generate ambivalence rather than to work towards closure. Um, and I mean, she also knows that I would 
see some echoes of the, that kind of defamiliarization around ambivalence also in popular culture texts, not just as um, Echo would have them in high culture. Yeah. But there are many, many kinds of representation. They comment, they cross-refer, they are critical, they close, but they also open. And I just wonder if any of you want to offer, a, I don't know if this is... I don't just want to add in one tiny thing to what you said, yeah. just to before... Just say, I mean, the representations that Bart concerns himself are myths uh, are in, in that particular thing. And therefore, he says yes. these representations, and I can perhaps agree everything is a representation, but these representations need to be marked off because they are performing a fundamental function for capitalism. So then, so then we need the theory of what's your account of genre, and that would also kind of help you organise how you might anticipate audiences would respond. Sorry. Well, um... I know you're a fan of Umberto open-close. Um, I don't use the open-close um, notion but um, because I think um, it's, um, it, it has a judgmental element in it in, in the sense that open is good and closed is bad, to put it very... Um, open is ambivalent. No, ambi- yes, ambivalence I'm, I'm very much drawing, but I'm, I'm coming from the kind of sociological claim of trying to think, but which you know, really converges with the textual, which is basically the inability to categorize a thing and place it in a particular category, available category, or in a category that, a category that exists altogether. And these are the kind of representations that I'm, I'm not only looking at them, but I'm, that I'm, I'm, I've searched from them, you know, like gold, in a way. That, that, and partly what I argue with the ones that I did find is that they open up Alaiko, if you wish, um, precisely something that um, repeatedly doesn't exist, even in the, even in these experiences, like migrant experiences, that are inherently complex, inherently ambivalent, inherently, if you wish, impossible to categorize very simply, and they're and yet they're being categorized, simplified, closed down. Um, so it's the ambivalent space that I'm where I'm struggling for, um, but within, if you wish, the terms that the media operate today. So I'm, for instance, questioning and asking whether intimacy can enable ambivalent <coughs> understanding rather than just saying, you know, it's, it's closed altogether, it's, it's, it's ineffective or it's immoral in some ways. Um, so I don't know if I've answered to your questions. To me, and I think you, you know it from previous, and this is something I, I didn't kind of put explicitly in the book, but... I was very influenced by, um, actually, a Russian formalist, Shklovsky, um, who wrote um, a fantastic essay about estrangement, as, as, as basically as an artistic technique. And he, he looks at Tolstoy, he was a, um, a literary critic of uh, Tolstoy, and he looks at one of the stories of Tolstoy, which is called Holstomer, which is a, Holstomer is a horse. And the horse tells the story about the oligarchs and about... And it's the only way, um, Sklovsky argued, that Tolstoy can really hit these oligarchs reading this story through putting it in the horse's mouth. Yeah? Um, <laughs> and, um, well, it's probably not the best time to call the media to become a horse, <laughs> given the recent scandal I just realized. But otherwise, without the recent scandal, the kind of representations that I am... Um, partly, um, in a way, asking the media to give up, 
to produce and asking individuals to contribute is the one, the horsey one, if you wish, the one that do um, are, are able to shake us off to um, estrange us, not always in radical ways, but in ways that makes us reflect and make us critical of the representations that we consume, but also of the way we live our lives. Um, so it's there that I'm trying to identify, rather than as an open and closed one, is perhaps within the open ones, what kind of types can we find of representations that um, are that can't and won't necessarily fit to the categories that we're so used to. And mythologies, of course, is the ultimate closed, isn't it? It's the... The echo reference that you make there reminds me of Umberto Echo's essay on uh, on Casablanca, you know, the cliches are having a ball, you know, in which he systematically examines how Casablanca is absolutely full of cliches. You know, and in fact, one of the biggest cliches is this idea of a place called Casablanca in which all these cliches meet each other and gather together <laughs> and produce the film which people still describe as their favourite film as though there was a, a hint of originality in the entire thing, which there isn't. I mean, as he points out, interestingly enough, it was made up as it went along. So the reason that sort of Ingrid Bergman never looks as though she knows who she loves is because no, she didn't know who she was supposed to love until the very end. But the point about it is, the more serious point about it, it is stuffed with cliches, and yet something stuffed with cliches actually generates something which is you know, remarkably acceptable. You know, how can you come up? And really, when cliches about the world and cliches about Africa and cliches about France, I mean, I like to dwell with inside a French stereotype um, when I'm going on holiday to France. I want to, I want to have a friend, and I'm damn certain I'm going to make the auto routes emptier than they really are, the food better than it really is, the terroir to have some bloody meaning, even though I'm being fleeced by the local shopkeeper. I almost want to work with the cliches. You know? I almost want to make them true in order that I can properly enjoy myself within this sort of predictability. I love yeah. a bit of cliché, you know, when I'm going on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of uh, being on holiday in this country and went to a small village shop. And, um, you know, it was the sort of beautiful village green and there was a little kind of shop that was selling lovely produce. And I went up into the cheese bit and I said to the guy, is this cheese local? And he said, Oh, yes, sir, it is. It's very local to from where it was made. <laughs> <laughs> I saw... I saw you can talk like that, of course. I'm just bringing out another cliché. Let's get another couple of questions here. Um, I think my question relates to what has been just said. Um, I was thinking... You were mentioning Haiti, and you were mentioning the modernist narrative. And um, I was reading a book called um, Hegel, Haiti, and um, Universal History. And it's about this kind of Eurocentric story uh, and about, uh, on the opposite, the postmodern idea of plurality. And, um, uh, and I was wondering, for some, for instance, you, you were saying Haiti is this song. It evokes this song you were mentioning. For others, it evokes uh, the first black republic. So I wonder, because I'm a bit suspicious when I hear media representation and the global imagination in the singular, and especially when one evokes global imagination, you could tend to say, well, this fits into what I was pointing out just before, or what I read in this book of this kind of 
a reproduction of a modernist post-enlightenment universal story of you know a narrative mm. and how do you really can disrupt it uh, disrupt it if you want to or you don't want to you know I mean um, yeah where does the political come in there mm. from your perspective yeah I should say that um, funny when I got to the proofs of the book um, the cover um, was media representations and the global imagination and I called in panic to polity. Um, because when I speak of representation in the singular, I, I refer to the process and to the act of making symbols to um, depict um, the reality um, that we uh, refer to. But throughout the book, obviously, in examining the texts and the images and the narratives, I always talk about them in the plural. And indeed, the argument is that in the contemporary media space, contestation between various voices is increasing. So this is really one of the contexts that I'm operating with, that is, there's no singular representation, that there are, incre- there, there are competing representations, but that the act of representation is one that captures um, this process. But it's not, so it's not intended to be singular to say that there's one narrative, not at all. On the, I definitely think that uh, in examining examples as, for example, as the Haiti um, remake, um, however honorable it is, and it raised a lot of money, I'm not criticizing, you know, to the health, um, it does mute, literally, the, na- the other narratives that you talked about. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see how the Haitians that are shown are muted. So they, and we hear the um, singers in, in the L.A. studio singing. They are, they are not even so... Seemingly, we are introduced to them. We haven't seen them before. They're dancing, surprisingly enough, after a hearth, an earthquake, um, singing and dancing. Um, but certainly, it's, it's muted. So my argument, yes, that these popular narratives, not all of them, but some mute and close back to Umberto Eco. You know, they, they close the possibility to understand it otherwise. I'm not saying that they are the only one that exists there. And again, I haven't asked people how influential they are. But um, you know, judging by at least the, the, the presence that they received also in the blogsphere, and the blogsphere is where what you refer to comes because people were highly critical of it and said, some people said, I watched it and I almost didn't want to donate just after watching it. So it's precisely this, it's not me. I, I want to distance myself. This is where contestation happens, and I think it is, we are witnessing a space that is much more um, cacophonic on, one, on the one hand, but competitive and, and contested on the other. And I suppose in a way, going back to Laurie's point, that people have always said, Yes, I may be consuming this, but I don't necessarily buy into it completely. I suppose mm. the difference is that now we can see that more. Can literally, and that's good for media research. Mm. You can now actually see people contesting because we can see vlogs and we can see them getting angry on Twitter. Very quick question. Here. Yeah, just quickly. Since you uh, touch a couple of uh, blogs mm. which were resonant in your research, I would like to know your opinion on this very um, kind of famous blog. Mm. which was uh, depicting the life of a girl, lesbian girl living in mm. Iran, which was a hoax. A hoax. Mm-hmm. This, this was sure. an example in which it was close uh, writing. People really felt there was a connection. There was an imaginary of what was happening there. There was investment mm. in that connection. And at the first moment, there were some uh, Iranian bloggers which were defending 
the existence of this girl, although there were other uh, people kind of outing the guy who was doing it. So would you endorse these kind of experiences, which in a way are open, they are inviting you to feel close to a global mm. idea, but which are not really based in reality? Well, I think, you know, it's, and obviously we hear about, uh, to me the interest in, in an example like this is actually to think about the transformation that representations have gone through from a source, the, the notion that particularly images, but representations have, have historically been acted as a proof, a proof that something happened. Um, and, and socially, where this certain of certainty, of reassurance, of comfort, if you wish, that this is evident of what happened. These kind of hoaxes, for me, are part of an interesting reality where representations lose it, their or original historical function and become increasingly a source of anxiety, uh, sometimes at the level of, is it a real Syrian woman? Um, but also at the level, not just at the level of truth or authenticity or inauthenticity, but at the level of the kind of anxieties they produce, not just about truthfulness. So that's my interest in a blog like this or in the kind of hoaxes wouldn't be so much to say it's bad or it's good, but to see how they are part of what representations have become in losing some of their historical function, which was very much the sense of a proof, particularly photography, of course, a proof of something had happened and it's true. Of course, we know that there were um, hoaxes that, you know, and, and... But hoaxing becomes easy in a way, doesn't it? Because mm. the media loves and thrives on victim stories. So, mm. I mean, what you're really here is having the mirror image where people, as it were, know. I mean, people in victim stories speak with victim story voices. You've only got to turn on, you know, the Radio 4. I mean, about a third of it is about victims, you know, people describing what a terrible life they've had in tones which are, they know, victim tones. And I can remember I did a programme once and I said, well, I'm having no victims on my programme ever. Absolutely no victims. And people keep producing this. We've got this one-legged person who's suffering from muscular dystrophy and trying to commit serious... And I said, no, I'm not having them. You know, there's plenty of space elsewhere. But it's interesting that it's the personalisation of large circumstances which provides the opportunity for the type of hoaxing that you're mm -hmm. describing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's a mirror mm -hmm. image of that way of telling stories. But what's, what's more unreal, you know, the... the that which is obviously not what it claimed to be representing. Or, you know, this morning I get loads of messages from Save the Children with, um, who was it? It's not Angelina, but... No, the other one. Various people immediately adopting a very... Oh, I know, it's it? Natasha Kapinski. You know, Natasha Kapinski, mm -hmm. the news presenter. And she did exactly what Laurie did. She wasn't the victim, of course, mm -hmm. but she'd been to see somebody who was. And she immediately... The I've never seen... I've never read anything by Natasha written in that way. She immediately adopted the kind of Geldofian... You know, yeah. As I stood there amidst the mud huts, the, yeah. the child raised its you know, sobbing eyes. Yeah. Yeah, and you thought, well, that's a very strange kind of representation that's quite true. She probably did explain it, uh, experience it, and... I'm sure she saw that child, but it's kind of... But and this is where, to me, the historical perspective is crucial, because you go to the witness accounts, the reports of the 75, 55 Lisbon, as you, you don't find this therapeutic voice, you don't. You find witnesses that are almost, uh, accounts that are almost forensic in style. And people who were there, 
and document it, and then it will circulate it, but you don't find the victim voice. So it's also to contextualize it in, as, as a modern yeah. voice, yeah. yeah. Time for one more question, uh, please. Um, hopefully this will address sort of the theme that you guys were touching on now, and hopefully also connect what you're working on currently with the book that you just published. Um, my question relates to how you talked about intimacy mm. in the book and also sort of the narrative of intimacy and sort of uh, humanitarian rhetoric. And going back to Hannah Arendt's idea of compassion versus mm. pity, compassion is something that you connect with the individual and that creates a more constructive, empowering relationship dynamic versus pity, which is what you have for the general audience, the masses. Right, and so it, when you, when we think about representation, this idea of intimacy, can you speak to? It sounds like you're a little bit critical of this idea of intimacy. Can you speak to perhaps sort of Hannah Arendt's idea of that compassion and that level of intimacy is actually constructive in the humanitarian project versus generalization of the masses? Yes, I think. Well, I use Arendt, and I, I my reading of Arendt is that it. Her, you know, her version of compassion is not uh, that intimacy is actually hand, goes hand in hand more so with pity rather than with compassion. Um, I think part of the critical uh, aspect is not that the focus on the individual is necessarily about always intimacy, but the way it's crafted is that it's not that we're brought with the story of individual, but we are also invited, almost demanded to become or to imagine ourselves in the place of their mother, their son, their friend. So it's a very, um, it's the sense of um, identification that Adam Smith in uh, his famous book has written about of kind of putting oneself in another's shoe. And this is something that I've questioned at least as the only, as becoming the exclusive um, way of thinking. And the Arendtian uh, notion is actually Richard Sennett in his last book, in Together, distinguishes between empathy and sympathy, very much along these lines. And actually, um, this, the, the intimacy and the identification is very much the um, sympathetic mode of relation, uh, what he calls it's hotter. And he argues, and I'm with him on this, to, for the cooler relation, the relation that is about recognizing the other in their difference recognizing, yes, that they are individu individuals, their predicament and their vulnerability, but the fact that we're not the same. I'm not his mother or her sister, and I cannot be, and actually I cannot imagine, start imagining what it is. But I can connect to the common humanity aspect, which is the Arendtian element. So this is where and I think Arendt would, I hope, be is w w with this critique of intimacy rather than... Um, arguing for it, at least in the way it's crafted in the contemporary media space. Do you remember, remember the title of Richard's early uh, work in which he talked about the horrors of living intimately? Mm. Uh, he called it destructive Gemeinschaft, yes. which is a lovely linguistic paradox. And the tyranny of intimacy. Which, yeah. Where two people get together into the same place and tell each other all their secrets, and then suddenly find they're enormously bored. <laughs> and then go out. By the way, just one last little word picked up by Charlie, if I may. I was, I was abroad not too long ago in a craft market in a small village in France, and there was a sort of rather sort of middle-aged, uh, well, no, late middle-aged lady, not a posh English lady, looking over these various craft artefacts, and I heard her saying, 
So sorry to bother you, Shepard. Do you have anything a little less authentic? really, really enjoyed myself tonight. It's been a, a fascinating. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Um, Saskia has had to, had to dash to the airport to Singapore. We're very grateful for her presence. We're very grateful for Laurie's presence. Uh, talking of presents, there's books outside to, to be bought and a reception as well. So stick around and have a, a, a further conversation. But most of all, I want to thank Shani for being so fantastic.